0: I think the, the thing that's distinguishing our high performers is that they create energy or buzz around them in their interactions and they get other people you know, engaged in what they're up to. The partners help them out, their peers give greater effort, the team is more innovative, the client wants to buy more, and he said that has everything to do with, with the way they create energy in the network and not how
1: smart they are. Hi, I'm David Green. And this is episode two of series 16 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. You just heard Rob Cross, professor of global leadership at Babson College and author of a brilliant new book, Beyond Collaboration, talking about the number one predictor of performance. It's not actually about how smart you are, but how you act as an energizer across your network. In this episode, I'll be talking to Rob Cross about collaborative overload the
0: downside is the first thing that you know you stop doing when you get collaboratively overloaded is you stop coming into interactions in ways that inspire other people's energy. Yep. Collaborative overload feels really good right up until it doesn't, you know. <laughs> you're in the thick of things, you're, you know, people rely on you, it's high energy, stuff's going and then, you know, right until it's that last project that gets dumped on you, your significant other says no more through the weekend or health problem, whatever it is, right? And then it just starts this kind of, you know, quick decline there if you're not Thinking about it, you know, at the heart of it, the people that are going to do better, they're going to be
1: more intentional at finding ways to, to push these collaborative demands down. Throughout the episode, Rob and I discuss how to reclaim 18 to 24 percent of your time, or about one full day per week, by reducing collaborative overload. We also discuss what it means to be an energizer and how to use organizational network analysis, or ONA to measure energizers and their impacts across the organisation. We also cover how to use active and passive ONA to tackle pressing business challenges, for example, designing successful hybrid work and diversity and inclusion initiatives.
2: Today, I'm delighted to welcome Rob Cross, the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College, and author of a brilliant new book, uh, Beyond Collaboration Overload, and in my view, the world's leading authority in organisational network analysis to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Bit of a mouthful to get started there, Rob. It's, been, it's great to have you on the show. Can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to yourself and your work? yeah absolutely and it's such a,
0: a treat to be here and with everybody i think i bring a, a an angle or a lens into the people analytics world that's looking at uh, ways that relationships have impact in uh, different different ways and so such an opportunity to just get to share some thoughts and ideas and I'm, I'm super appreciative of all you do to to kind of bring those ideas into this conversation david very much Um, But my focus is I I teach at Babson uh, and I also on the side, I run a a group called the Connected Commons. That's a group of about 110 organizations now that are very focused in just taking analytical views into how networks and collaboration have impact on different uh, things in organizations. I use the things, you know, idea lightly because, you know, sometimes we're focusing at very large macro levels and looking at ways to drive cultural change more effectively or, you know, very heavily right now, the whole return to work idea and how do you think about, you know, keeping networks together that need to be together in different ways has become interesting Um, all the way down to the focus of this, this book, uh, which is very much more at the individual level, you know, and understanding kind of how individuals are connecting or collaborating in ways that uh, yield outcomes. But the real thread throughout in almost everything we're doing is uh, using Analytic insights uh, around what kinds of connections matter, how much, what should people be doing to get scale in their collaborations, and really try to kind of bring that perspective to bear in providing guidance on what organizations should be thinking about, what levers they have to pull uh, to either reduce or you know in- increase connectivity as as has an impact for them.
2: And it's interesting, as I'm sure we'll, we'll explore in our conversation, that this study of networks and, and collaboration is was already lots of talk about it and lots of companies doing it. And obviously lots of more technology coming in place to to kind of support um, some of that work as well. Right. and then and then the pandemic happens. Right, right, right. um and everyone's talking about collaboration in in different work modes as well at the moment so i think we will explore lots in our conversation we'll pack a lot in for for listeners yeah. now obviously the first thing that i need to mention and i will stick it up in case it's on the video because I, I have an advanced copy here um, it's a new book. You know, the timing is is fantastic, I, I guess. Um, but obviously, as I know, writing a book takes time and a lot of right, effort as well. Right, um, right. It's released on September fourteenth. So I know that it's uh, pre- it's uh, available for pre order now. You know, can you give listeners a brief overview and introduction to the book, and you know, yeah, what what will they find if they if they decide to to pick it up and read it? Absolutely. So um,
0: it's always great to see that because I haven't gotten a copy myself. I just know it goes out to influencers like yourself and they get to read (laughs) it. What I'm dying for is my wife to see the the endorsement for her and and see what her reaction is. So you'll have to uh, take a look at that. but um, the the book is uh, in any in many ways it's interesting what you mentioned about the pandemic because I think in, there's a lot of people whose fields of research were dramatically negatively impacted you know by by what happened and, and how innovation may be emerging or space is used or things like that. Um, for me, and uh, it's actually put this probably on a five year trajectory of advancing the ideas. And people really thinking about how do we either within teams we care about manage connectivity and collaboration more intentionally uh, or as individuals, especially, you know, at that level, how we are going to go into some form of work going forward where we have fewer structures around us dictating the patterns of connectivity, even if it's just physical space, right? And the amount of time we're spending in a given context together. And so it's been interesting in that it's actually accelerated in many ways, um, the need for people to be very intentional about how they're managing their own connectivity. So the the title, you know, uh, Beyond Collaborative Overload, came about with um, just the initial step of what we see the high performers doing. But at the heart of it, the book is really geared on understanding uh, work we've been doing for almost twenty years now in the consortia, where we would map these network analytics, you know, across hundreds of organizations now, and then go in and see what. Uh, are the patterns of connectivity that are distinguishing the high performers. So those people that get and stay in the upwardly mobile category. Uh, You know, we've done that for about 20 years. And then over the past 10, the members of the consortium were really interested in saying, well, we love the performance angle, but could you also, you know, broaden your definition of success to think about people that are just, you know, God forbid, happy in their work, right? And so the the idea is we've looked at performance and then also measures around thriving, well-being, career satisfaction, I mean, all sorts of different measures. You'll hear me reference them as the happy people, but I mean that kind of tongue-in-cheek. There's been a lot of kind of analytics behind that. And that's the heart of the book, right, is to understand those people that are outperforming and sustainable in what they're doing, really investigating the way they're collaborating that enables them to, uh, uh, to be successful. And what we see in it, the heart of the book is on this infinity loop model, where uh, we see the people that are doing better they tend to be more efficient collaboratively than their peers. So we can go out and plot these analytics and see who are the people that give the greatest impact and take the least amount of time in these groups. And I then went out and interviewed you know, 100 women, 100 men. We just did a whole suite of things to understand behaviorally, what are you doing that's wow. enabling you to be about 18 to 24% more efficient than your peers? Right? Uh, and so that's kind of one side of the loop is talking about some of the strategies there. And then the question that was really important to me to build into this book is not just how do you buy back time? Like that was the initial thing I was getting asked for from everybody. But, but then also to say, okay, once you buy that time back, what do the more successful people do with it? (laughs) Because if you just buy the time back and then go back to faster meetings, I mean, that's, what's killing us from the pandemic, right? We've gone from having meetings that are an hour long to 30 minutes. People have a ton more of them and they're just more overwhelmed by the end of the day. They're not doing things differently. And so the right side of this loop, latter part of the book is very much geared around how, are these people engaging in collaboration in ways that enable them to scale differently? And it's a very different view of, of kind of how collaboration is creating scale and innovation, you know, for these people um, that, that kind of ties together there. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> it's really great. Good. Well, I yeah,
2: think it's a great, a great overview. And 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 I'm not surprised that the field has kind of tr- had a trajectory forward five years because so the, what you just talked about is everything I'm hearing from talking to, to organizations, people working as people analytics leaders in those organizations and what they're being asked to, to, to look at. Um, And you're right, you know, you know, people analytics as a field is definitely um, seen an upward trajectory I think since the start of the pandemic, you know, you know, for for, over a multitude of, a multitude of things. So, um, you know, it's, it, it is interesting. I think that, as you said, that some fields have, Really, been hit. You know, right. people's areas of research have been hit by the pandemic, and others have been accelerated. Um, what I'd love to hear, um, without giving too much away from the book, but maybe <laughs> tempting people. You know, how do people succeed in in a hyperconnected world? Because, you know, I I love the fact that as you said, it's not just about how to buy back time, but it's what do the successful people do with that time so how that how do they succeed in this in this hyperconnected world
0: yeah 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 so I'll, i can touch on kind of either side a little bit and maybe put out some some ideas there because i think you know what's been really important in this work is understanding first how are people buying the time back yeah and what they can actually do that they have more control over than sometimes we think you know at the heart of it and, you know, yourself or any audience that you go into, if you just go back to people and say, you need to connect with these five people in a different way, they'd roll their eyes at us, right? I mean, none of us has a spare second to to barely just get through the days and be healthy anymore. And so if you're not starting with this notion of how do you reclaim that time, you're just, you know, tending to fall on deaf ears. And so at the at the heart of it, you know, what we could see in all these interviews... Uh, that I did is there are three broad categories of things and then a whole set of behaviors under each of these that we see the more efficient collaborators. Um, It's not just about a technology, right? If anything, that's exacerbating the problem. Most leaders I would talk to would say we're managing across nine different kinds of collaborative tools these days because they're just inexpensive and we've engaged in too much. Um, It's more about the norms of use, right, that I would see. Double email isn't really killing us. As much as we think sometimes it's the culture of use we allow to persist around it. And you find that the more efficient collaborators, they would just be persistent. They can't control all email, right? That's the the knee-jerk reaction that people say, well, I can't control all email, so it's not worth trying. But if you do, you can oftentimes influence the use of email with the people that you're most connected with, right? And so you get about 60% of it, (laughs) which, you know, on the margin can kind of add up to quite a bit if you agree on norms of when we're going to use it, how we're going to use it. Write it in bullet formats, not five paragraphs where you're hiding what you want in the fourth, you know all sorts of just kind of easy conventions to kind of build in, yes. so at the heart of it, we find that they're the more efficient collaborators they're putting structure into their work differently, now they're more likely to strategically calendar the block reflective time to manage role interdependencies ahead of the demands coming at them, but they, they don't just play defense, they're playing offense and kind of structuring their work. Um, Number two is that they're really aware of, you know, what I call these identity triggers, our our tendencies as human beings to jump in when we shouldn't. And that was my biggest surprise in all this work. I started this game convinced that the enemy was out there, you know, it was time zones, emails, nasty bosses, demanding clients and came out the other end, you know, many, many years looking at this hundreds and hundreds of interviews, completely convinced that 50% or more of the problem is us. And yeah, how yeah. we tend to jump in, we all have different drivers that that drive it, but we tend to jump in because we like accomplishment, we like status, uh, we're a servant-based leader, which is great, right? But it, it only works up to a certain extent where you get overwhelmed. So there's nine of these triggers that, that people um, that are successful in this game, they learn to guard against, the one that drives them to jump in. And it really, really matters, you know, to, to be thinking about kind of the structural piece, the identity piece, and, and in that small moment where you have a tendency to jump in to kind of pull back for a second and say, no, and then the tactical piece, right? It's emails, it's meetings. There are a lot of very specific things that, that people do there. Um, yep. So that's on the on the the buy, you know, time back side of it. And then uh, what we see with the, the more successful people is they're, much more likely to do two things really at the heart of it you know one is when an opportunity passes by if you have eight things on your plate um and a ninth opportunity passes by there's you know one category of person that just hunkers down and tries to get it done right with yeah. themselves the people that they're using all the time and they're probably burning those people out uh as well and then there's the second that's bought back just enough time they've done just enough of this that they have a little bit more space in their lives that tends to either take that request or see the possibility and they reach more broadly uh, into the network to say, is there a different way to do this? Should I be involving others? Can I accomplish something greater? And they're the ones that win. We can see it's the second biggest predictor of a high performer. It's not nefarious or political or other things like that. It's just ultimately at the heart of it, they are producing things of greater substance and impact and they're building their own reputational capital in the way they're doing it so things flow to them you know, over time. Um, and there's one more I'll come back to in a minute. I, I wanna pause here for a second, but I can tell you kind of the biggest predictor uh, after that, but um, but you get the the synergy of it, right? The, the first thing that we all stop doing when we're overloaded, if we allow that to happen is we don't look at those small moments expansively, right? Yeah. We either pass them by or we say, how do I just get this done quickly? And we don't, you know, it, it just starts this kind of narrowing process for people that, that derails them over time. So that's you know one way the ideas kind of fit together there. Yeah, yeah.
2: That, well, and, and and interesting you say that you reach more broadly into your network to think about is there a different way that we could look at this or, you know, to, to, to get it done. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. Um, you know it's quite so of smiling when you were talking about some of those things you know around you 're right, you know with email, sixty yes. percent is from the same people, so if you agree ways of engagement quick rules of engagement, if you want to call it via email um that 's a great way of doing it and and I see people that send great emails who probably get better responses are the ones that put up front what they want, as you right. said they don 't hide it in the fourth or fifth bullet down because they 're too afraid to right. They, they can't get to the point quick enough. It um, might like me sometimes with my questions, but, um, but, but yeah, it's, 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 it's really, really interesting, I think. And, and I, and I guess what the book does is it, it, it helps guide people. And, and it's the same in anything, isn't it? When you, when you learn the tricks of some of the best performers, then you, you feel more able to apply them to, to yourself, I guess. That's what I, you know, that, that, and that's the
0: intent, right. And what I was hearing in this, of course, every time I write for, Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, other places—they're always looking for what's that one seductive principle? You know what I mean? That one thing we can build a book around, and this is just not that game. Like I've done so much of this in groups, where we'll talk about each of these ideas—structure, you know, identity and and tactics—and say, well, which do you most need to do? And we'll poll on it, right? And and there's never one thing that gets picked, mm. you know, in these polls. And these polls can be thousands of people, right? It's almost always a pretty even distribution. And so, you know, the the nature of the challenge is to kind of guide yourself down to the three things that you're going to be dogmatically persistent on, and you fight on the margin. You know, I, I equate the this to uh to people is is not a it's not a ballet right it's not an elegant solution it's a brawl (laughs) where you're kind of on it on the margin every day and that's what these people do that get back a day a week right so it's a significant return but you've got to be on it and it always seems to be in those small things like another one i'll hear constantly is groups will agree okay no no email after 10 o'clock at night right if you have to write it write it but then send it on delay the next morning yeah propagate that 1001 response and 1002 and 1005 and further that always on culture. Right? I mean, that's a small thing, right? A small agreement. But you know, it can it can stem a lot of um behavior that's not that helpful, right? Especially as people that are new to groups coming in. They don't quite know what the norms are in different ways. So
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean I must a trick I a trick I've learned is when there's multiple people on an email chain, um, resisting that temptation to jump in and sometimes seeing how it plays out. And then by the time it gets to the end, sometimes the problem has been resolved or yeah, you only have yeah. to actually add one line or a couple of lines. And other, if yeah. you got involved earlier, you just would have been involved in, in even yeah. more. And, and, and everyone else more work as well.
0: Yeah. The thing that's fascinating about that to me is people typically look at my big analytics and they see these people that are overwhelmed and they're like, that person's a hoarder, right? Or they're the micromanager. And what you're describing is you create a reliance on yourself there. If you jumped in, if you did it, you have created a reliance on yourself, but you're not hoarding. You just want to show presence, right? Or you want to help, right? So it's driven by all sorts of tendencies. When I talk about these triggers, it's not just the control freaks that get into this trouble, you're as likely to see these high servant-based mindset leaders mm. that are very well intended. Um, but if they create themselves as the path of least resistance, or they see helping as helping directly versus allowing a capability to solve the problem to be built, then they they hit these points. And what you're describing is funny. It's, it's the opening story in the first chapter is about this this leader that you know kind of was faltering significantly. And that was on a bigger scale, one of the tendencies, right, to jump at a at a certain point. um So it's it's kind of eye opening when you really dissect it and start seeing the degree to which that's a form of overload. Again, that that's not out there. That's us that did that. Yeah, yeah. Like
2: that. <laughs> and that you, you, as soon as you said, you know, and obviously, you've been reading some of the book. You know, once you know, we say fifty percent of it is us, and you think, yeah, it is. You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it really is, and those and the good thing about that, those are the sorts of things you control, control and train yourself better to to, right. to, to do. I mean, in a, in a way, it's good that fifty percent is us because hopefully that means we can try and do something about it. Those are hard, yeah. It's
0: thing. just hard. I mean, I know for me, it's the accomplishment. Like if I see a five minute sliver. I will jam an hour of stuff into that you know, and find a way to involve others if I'm not careful and you know six, eight weeks out I'm wondering how did I get here again and yeah, it was me right <laughs> that, that started it and so it's a it's a it's an interesting you know kind of challenge with it all but
2: so you mentioned the second biggest predictor of six ah, six. good I was wondering if you take so that I'm one glad one. I remember what is the what is, what is, what is the biggest yeah. six, and six. so this is you know again
0: a separate chapter in there but what we found in the network analytic work and this started You know, over 20 years ago, uh, it was in one of the blue chip consulting firms and they were saying, well, I don't think what distinguishes our high performers is a couple of points of IQ because we get really bright people. And they were saying this one partner in particular was saying to me that I think the the thing that's distinguishing our high performers is that they create energy or buzz around them in their interactions and they get other people. You know, engaged in what they're up to. The partners help them out. Their peers give greater effort. The team is more innovative. The client wants to buy more, and he said that has everything to do with with the way they create energy in the network, and not how smart they are. You know, slightly yeah. higher IQ or whatever. And so, and sure enough, we've <laughs> mapped it there, and over twenty three years now, actually. We've been kind of applying that energy idea in these network analytics and statistically it is usually four times the predictor of a high performer. We find that kind of broad, diverse network, early stage problem solving tends to outpredict. After a certain point, it outpredicts human capital measures, you know, at a certain point, you start to propagate with people that are similarly smart and willing to work hard and it becomes the network that, that distinguishes people if they're scaling. And then that energy idea tends to be four times the predictor, the beta weights, you know, in there. I love being able to
2: say that because most, most audiences. I can't mm-hmm. <laughs> go into <laughs> mm-hmm. So how do it. you measure that energy? Because that that's, uh, that would be really great to hear. Yeah. yeah. Well, so for me, it's just a basic question. You know, it's when you interact with some people, you
0: walk away more enthused. Yeah. And, and we can ask it in a couple of different ways. And this is one of the reasons that I still... Uh, despite also being able to use all sorts of passive analytics that we do use, um, the predictive abilities of both the positive and the negative emotional interactions are far beyond the informational ones every time. So, you know, I can look at kind of the positive side of energy, just who are those people that you walk away and you're just a little bit more enthused uh, about what you're up to, not all the time, but typically, and you count number of incoming nominations and, and find your energizers, you know, that way. And, and you find that it's it's very behavioral is the interesting thing. I've I've had people on my team or myself go back and we interview the energizers, the people that create it, and then the energized, you know, in yeah. these networks to see what's going on. And it's, you know, nine pretty specific behaviors. It's not sometimes what we think of in the sense that you're likely to see, for example, a, a, a low-key person be an energizer as somebody that's traditionally charismatic, right? It's not kind of built up in the, Flamboyance or extroversion, um, but they're much more likely, for example, to stay fully present in a conversation. They're not checking the text constantly, or they're much more likely to see realistic possibilities that connect with uh, what others care about—not just their stuff, but you yeah. know, what others care about. And so, um, so that's that's you know, it's held so consistently across hundreds of organizations, all sorts of industries, um, that the the bigger predictor is. Again, it's not having that big network, but rather being somebody that creates pull to you. You know what I mean? They they get better talent around them. We can see they stay longer. Uh, ideas flow their way, um, and just like I was describing with the infinity loop, you know, the downside is the first thing that you know you stop doing when you get collaboratively overloaded is you stop coming into interactions in ways that inspire other people's energy. Yeah. right. You come in and you're like how do I get this done? And maybe a nice person, but you're, you're focused, right? You're kind of narrow it in on what has to happen. Um, and so again, that's the insidious nature of this. It's like if you're not taking care of the overload piece, then you just don't tend to engage in ways that, that help you get scale, right. And
2: get things kind of flowing to you in different, uh, in different ways over time. And I guess that's the danger because if you are one of these energizers, people naturally gravitate towards you, The likelihood is that you could be one of the people maybe that's most at risk of burnout because you do get the overload right and these analytics we
0: run and i think it's i mean one of the really fascinating things about collaborative overload and i love the way you said it cuz i think it's what drives it is collaborative overload feels really good right up until it doesn't you know <laughs> you're in the thick of things you're you know people rely on you it's high energy stuff's going and then you know right until it's that last project that gets dumped on you your significant other says no more through the weekend or health problem whatever it is right and then it just starts this kind of you know, quick decline there if you're not thinking about it. But that's the insidious nature, right? Is you've got to be thinking about in those situations, do I engage directly or do I help create capability? Do I connect people under me? You know, and, and kind of see that, that happening over time.
1: When we come back in just a moment, more of a conversation between Rob and I as I asked Rob his views on why the use of passive organisational network analysis is accelerating so rapidly. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by TechWolf. TechWolf uses AI to identify skills. Why? Because companies who know their workforce's skills data are better equipped to face change. The best insight in skills wins. But how? Getting skills data used to be a long administrative process, not anymore. Thanks to TechWolf's breakthrough use of AI and natural language processing in particular, skills can now automatically be extracted from HR and non-HR data sources like HRIS, learning platforms, or project management tools. With TechWolf's Connected Skills API, you can get a fully automated and continuous overview of your people's evolving skills in less than eight weeks. To learn more, visit techwolf.ai. That's techwolf.ai. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast with Rob Cross. Now, back to the conversation.
2: I'm going to ask one more. Um, you mentioned something around, obviously, you've been doing network analysis for, you mentioned 23 years on, on this particular study. It may even be longer. You know, Oh, recently we've seen passive um, network ana- yeah. analysis come in which you know certainly helps in terms of doing things at scale I guess and helps mm-hmm. you do things on a continuous basis you right. mentioned you use both you know how has the kind of acceleration of passive ana- network analytics supported the work that you've been doing long-term in active. yeah i mean the on the on the
0: acceleration right the gas pedal side of it i mean just the 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 number of possibilities right have exploded right it it used to be just email and now it's all the different channels and things like that and and to to me um so on the acceleration side right that's that's it's like a, a gold mine yeah and if anything it's it's a little bit overwhelming because every organization have, has a different culture, whether they rely on i m more than email yeah. or phone, and you're trying to dissect what's the you know the right link that actually has impact there um the The break in this whole game this has been fascinating to me to watch because I would have thought ten years ago we were leaning more into passive and starting to move away from active. But what we found and most people have found is that the, the privacy regulations, just they, they put a real damper <laughs> on it and the level you can get to and the actionable insights you can get out if you don't have opt-in or other uh, elements like that. So it's, it's for me, it's never that one is better than the other. It's usually what's the thing that we're trying to accomplish. And yeah. typically, if I find that it's a large cultural transformation, we may be using active approaches because we get sentiment better in that and there's nobody in the that i'm aware of right now outside of maybe some of the litigation issues that that pull the content of the emails no, for, you know sentiment that way that could technically but you know it just doesn't go socially um and so you need you know different different ways for people to be reacting to things you know on that level uh, on the other side like you said the continuous measurement i mean that and even that's one of the challenges right Of like how often do you need to be doing and taking action on the measures, right? When I've worked with some of the, the collaboration, you know, big, big companies. That's a really interesting question because the, the the continuous nature is great, but it, then it also can just flood you with data that you don't quite know, you know, how and when should I be taking action on it? So it's a real kind of challenge. But, but things that I, I see and we're working with different companies on right now are like attrition models. You know, yeah. you can start to see. You know, people coming in. Are they getting connected enough? Do they have the right sets of connections that correlate uh, or predict retention or departure? Mm-hmm. Um, looking at uh, DEI, you know, more in a more novel way. This way, it's been a huge area of interest of mine for 20 plus years. And I could never get the attorneys to agree to give um, ethnicity data over until recently with the social unrest. Suddenly everybody said, Oh, this is something we do something about." You get tremendously different insights right around what you can do to speed inclusion. And, and mm-hmm. the fact that it's not kind of one population against all the others, it's these islands that you start to see. And it just, you know, those kind of insights to be able to track that, maybe week-to-week week or month-to-month, month. Uh, large-scale mergers, you know, things like that are fantastic kind of passive applications. Um, the the problem, though, is, is usually the aggregation up. You're not oftentimes able to go down to the individual mm-hmm. um, and see them. You're looking at aggregations of three or five or teams or things. And there can be times that works, but there can be other times if you're worried about well-being where you really know, need to know, right, the individual. And so that's... Um, kind of the heart of the trade-off, you know, for me is is what's the nature and the the biggest impact you're trying to have with the project, and that starts to dictate uh, selections. Sometimes of one or the other, or sometimes hybrid approaches that we're putting things together.
2: And I guess you know, and it leads on nicely to the next question. Actually, you know, one of the conversations is if you're going to do analytics of any type, you know, people analytics of any type, whether it's using network analysis or or other techniques you know it's all you know if you can provide value to the individual whose data you're analyzing like the employee so for example if it's linked to well-being or burnout or something you can create actions that benefit that individual then hopefully that that solves some of the the privacy and and legal challenges that 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 we yeah, get totally i
0: mean that's how we get by the works councils <laughs> all the time in this game is our the softwares we built in the consortium They not only, you know, run the analytics at a dashboard level, but each person has a report generated for themselves or a website. And so it's not showing, gosh, that David doesn't like Rob or doesn't come to Rob or what. It's not at that level. It's just saying, look, your network is more or less insular than your peer group, and here's some things you could do about it. And I've found, you know, over all the years we've done this, boy, we've used every trick possible (laughs) to get, you know, for using surveys to get the surveys back giving away raffles to vacations or iPads or whatever. And the thing that worked immediately like that was when each individual got a value add, you know what I mean, back for them. Then it was suddenly not a problem at all to get the response rates up. I, I would like to see, you know, and I don't want to mention vendors' names, but I've got five in my mind. I'd like to see them doing more with the actual network data um, in creating these individual reports, I know mm. some of them have like time spent and kind of meeting management mechanisms. But there's a tremendous uh, strength if those organizations would would do it in helping people start to understand um, well, how is bias creeping into my network. You know, so for example, one of the things we know is that when people rise in an organization and continue to hold with 70 percent of their trusted ties back where they came from. Um, it's a natural tendency and it tends to derail people in ways yeah. that are visible to them, right? They just don't see what's happening that they should have been paying attention to. You should easily be able to see that with email, right? And yeah. easily be able to create these, you know, Venn diagrams, whatever it is that helps somebody say, well, I need to lean into this area or that area and deprioritize some of these, you know, interactions. So there's a lot like that, that I really would love to see the organizations do, that's that's basing on understanding what the high performers are doing you know what I mean and helping to kind of feed that back to individuals in a, in a productive way and I hope I hope we get there more and more
2: yeah yeah I I agree you know I mean I've seen tools out there and again I won't mention any names that let you know if you you know some of your top connections who you haven't spoken to for a while right. and, and, that, and that's quite good and, but if you, you think about sales you know if if you've got the you know, aggregated level of what high performers in sales are doing in terms of their, the, the combination of maybe um, contacts or connections they've got in and outside the organisation and what teams within the organisation they've got strong connections. And what a great learning tool that is for for, for other people that are aspiring to be high performing salespeople. And then obviously there's the benefit to them. Benefit, huge benefit to the organization as well. So, um, right. right. Yeah. And,
0: and, and that, that same idea, you, uh, like we looked at, for example, um, uh, onboarding, or it, it's, it's evolved really. It's a different program of work. The, the program around the book was very much focused on the high successful people, right? High performance yeah. and sustainable. A different one that we had a ton of companies involved with in and that's become even more important right now are looking at transitions in groups so it used to be they just wanted to know about onboarding but then it became about promotions or lateral transitions with agile work right and what we could see in that just as another example is that in general strong culture companies it would take people about three to five years to come in and replicate the connectivity of a high performer didn't mean they weren't talking to people it meant they hadn't built the same constellation of bridging ties you know trust reputation that sort of thing that enabled people to scale um, and yet we would see some people do it in nine months. Yeah. And so, you know, we, again, interviewed the heck out of them and said, okay, here's how you can shift some of the things you're doing in these transition states um, to kind of get that. And that's a, I mean, that's a really big deal today. If anything, the the network and the relationships are going to be more important you mm. know, as we go back and return to our context. And so, you know, giving evidence of that to your point back just like the salespeople or the high performer understanding those people that move seamlessly across groups. Um, One of the studies and maybe you would know about this I'd love to ask you this actually if I can turn the questions back for a second. (laughs) I've been fascinated by this thing I see on LinkedIn and I don't know if it's just me observing it and, and seeing it what I want to in a situation but one of the things that I see is Um, when people would enter into organizations and we looked at this carefully, if they were really good at creating pull uh, versus push, right? So push for me is when you come in and you sit down, you have your meet and greets and people say, well, David, tell me what you do and you fall into the trap of telling them. Right. And really most people don't care unless they know exactly how, what you do helps them. And so we find that the, the, the real fast movers, they would not answer the question. They would say, well, I'll tell you what I do, but, let me just understand quickly, what are your big priorities right now? Or one or two pain points. And they would, they would morph what they knew to that person's needs, give status, generate energy, and create a win. And this is one of nine pretty specific behaviors that distinguish the fast movers. But what was fascinating is the people that pushed, right, and said, here's what I do. And they're not arrogant. They're just doing what they've been taught. Yeah. What you would find is that they would start to struggle around the nine-month mark right? That was the point where they just didn't have that well of support around them. And so meetings that took the pull person, you know, initiatives that took the pull person one meeting to get through was taking them five, right? And and so they would leave, but the leaving may not happen for 18 to, to 24 months, we could see in this uh, over time. And I've been fascinated why what I see on LinkedIn, again, is um, this, this, a lot of times trickle effect where you see somebody that has a 10, 12, 14 year career in some place, and then they go on these two year runs. Mm. <laughs> and I've, I've been wondering or trying to find a way to design a study to see if that's not what's happening. You know what I mean? Because I think most of these people that end up leaving, they're just going low. Why don't these guys get me right or why why isn't this working like it just worked in other places they're not equating what they did in the first six months to the the problems they're having you know 18, 18 24 months out so
2: and yeah. it's really interesting <laughs> i suppose i suppose it's i, I can see it. it makes sense if you ask people what they need rather than tell people what you're there to do then and then you surface those needs, then right. that's going to help. Crazy. I mean, it's so, yeah. so so simple. It is, <laughs> yeah, but I'll
0: teach that in classes. Even this is, but of fun. course,
2: people are you're new in a company, and people ask, "What are you here to do?" And then you're probably just going to repeat, right? You know, for, what for base and what you you know you've agreed that you're going to be doing. Yeah, I right. mean. It makes a huge and, and
0: and you, you know, it makes sense. I mean, you're under pressure, right? You're trying to impress, you're new, and everything else. When I do this in my, my classes or executive programs, I would everybody would have the same reaction. Oh yeah, it makes so much sense, right? And then I would pull two executives down in the room and say, Okay, play this out. And they immediately go into pushing. You know what I mean? They immediately fall back and here's, you know, what I've done or whatever it is. And it's just kind of I think it's conditioned from grade school on, right? In us to you know, show we have to be smart in the moment, and and we just have kind of created, you know, unfortunately, a bad setup for
1: people. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now, let's go back to the conversation with Rob Cross, where we're going to explore more about how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted collaboration.
2: We talked a little bit about hybrid working, and and, um, I'd be really interested to get get your views on on how you see collaboration changing, if it will change, in in a a hybrid work environment.
0: Yeah. So, I think, um, I mean, what I'm seeing, and I'd be curious about what you see too, because you see a broader spectrum of all this than I do, but... Some of the reports I've been looking at were showing that people as they went into COVID were working five to eight hours more a week, deeper, you know, into the night, earlier into the morning on all sorts of, you know, either instant or email or other things like that. And the the troubling thing for me that I'm he- hearing about in all the uh, interview work that I've been doing is the meetings have gone from just, you know, example of an hour down to half an hour, right? Yeah. So if you're working an eight-hour day, it moves from eight meetings to 16, you know, making that number up, but it's just just the volume. And that does a number of things that are really hard for people, right? It, it creates a greater intensity in that 30-minute block. You've got to be on just a little bit more and focused It creates switching costs as you're moving from one point to the other, and then it creates a longer to-do list, right, at the end of the day, right? You're you're not eight things, but 16 now that you've got to kind of follow up on and whatever commitments. And so I think the overload, you know, and and the things that, again, I'm talking about in the book or other things we're doing in the consortia is a really big deal for people to be paying attention to. And I think part of the reason um, that we're experiencing so much stress through COVID is that in part there have been more of these demands placed on and then in part it's happened right as we've been pulled out of the external groups that kept us sane because of social distancing you know what i mean so the the book clubs the athletic groups you know other things like that really play a role in the well-being side of this all and that kind of gotten taken away and so i think you know at the heart of it the people that are going to do better they're going to be more intentional at finding ways to to push these collaborative demands down and there'll be professional connections that are important, but I also hope they invest in some of the well-being side too, you know what I mean, to to kind of uh, do that. That's at the individual level. Um, at the organizational level on the return to work, we've run a ton of studies recently for companies that are kind of thinking about how do we Think about hybrid work, right? And who do we bring back for what periods of time and then what constellation? And the network analytics are really well suited for that because you can kind of come in and say, okay, it's not so much this role, this role, this role because of the nature of the work. It's actually these sets of four or five roles because of the interactions between them that we want to preserve, you know, and and traditional like pure human capital analytics don't see those webs right, in the same way. So it's a really nice way to think about, you know, how you're bringing people back. But the, I think the biggest insight to me that's been intriguing is when we would ask all these people in the analytics, um, you know, what do you need to be turning to other people for face-to-face versus remote? And at the heart of it, we would hear in the face-to-face interactions, it was innovation, innovation, uh, it was growth in my work, and it was getting a sense of energy or purpose right from others um and so i that'll be one of the biggest challenges I think for companies as they think about how do they equip their leaders to yeah. use that face to face time better right You don't want people to just come back and use the two days to default into doing work as they did in the past. You really yeah, want yeah. people to be using that time to create energy and purpose, growth opportunities and innovation right and it, it means a very different thing or approach um, for for groups that are successful and a lot of the companies that have described that are working with these ideas they're building guides and other things like that to to kind of transition back differently
2: and i guess in very much it's an experiment in many right. respects. you Absolutely. know whatever <laughs> whatever cadence people come and what yeah. you know what you know, what interactions we think we need to do face-to-face versus remotely. And I guess we're going to have to measure that. And then, and then, and and then learn from it, you know, hopefully kind of be able to have
0: some of the network analytics too to see. Um, It was fascinating to me as we went into COVID, I I tagged a couple of questions onto these massive surveys, you know, big vendors that were putting it out there. And I just said, just give me an open-ended question that says, what are you learning right from this experience? And, and you normally, you this goes out to a thousand people or a thousand companies, you get like a page of open-ended responses back, right? Nobody has the time for it, but we were getting hundreds of pages back, right? Of people that were like deeply thoughtful comments around kind of, because it was such a, a shock to the system, right? An experiment, like you're saying, was just happened so quickly. Um, but it was really amazing. Like I would read down these things and the first bulk of them would be Oh, my gosh! this has been the best thing ever right i'm i've I've learned that there is a different way to live my life. I'm talking to my significant other, my children like me. I'm healthier, you know all these things. but then the amazing thing is I would see the exact reverse on just as impassioned it would be, oh my gosh, where did my commute go? I can't believe that's gone. That was the only time I had and <laughs> and you know for the second category, it's not really the commute. it's that they gave up control of the situation, yeah right and and they let you know, the system to define versus playing offense and kind of shaping it. And I think that's like, to me, and related to this book, that's one of the core ideas that I think we've all got to be playing a little bit more. There just aren't, there's nobody else paying attention to it. There's no, no I, chief of overload officers, you know, there's no kind of analytics really that are really targeting it just yet. Anyway, uh, that, that people have to, have to kind of make
2: their own way and experiment at a personal level too. And you know and a lot a lot of what you said and and i've heard from from others is this importance of being you know, intentional you know how can and, and what tips would you give to people to to so they can be more and obviously read the book but but but, but, seri- but seriously also how can people be you know what are the tips and tricks to be more intentional i'll rattle off like a
0: handful of them but you know um I think so. So blocking reflective time, right? That's an easy one. Everybody says, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then they give it up immediately. Right? right? They don't kind of stick it. We know that two hour block is associated with productivity and certain kinds of work. But what I would hear is actually a little bit deeper in all the interviews I was doing. So I would get on the phone with somebody and they would say, well, the first thing I do is email and get that out of the way. And then I try to go on to other forms of work. And then I would get on the next call and the person I would say, well, do you email first? And they would, you know, say some variant of, are you crazy? Like if I start with email, it never stops. And then I've, I've got a, you know, what they had learned was that they did their creative work early. They blocked email in 30 minute intervals. They communicated this to their team. So people knew when to expect to hear from them. And it's amazing how, when you do that, uh, life adjusts to you, you know, yep. in ways that surprises people an awful, an awful lot. Um, so there's all sorts of tricks like that, you know, with reflective time, with um, you know, all sorts of ways that people would think about their own well-being through the day, and that could take the form of just having, you know, a Fitbit competition or a 15 minute meditation point that some people loved. I mean, there's or just texts that you're joking with other people, right? And kind of get off task, but there was a greater intentionality, you know, on that side. Um, and I think the other thing that if I had like one really critical piece of advice, and this is coming from the well-being work and stuff that we've just finished there, I've been in you know two hundred interviews, hundred women, hundred men, and you know the first ten minutes are all great, right? Everybody's professional and polished and poised and laughing, but by you know forty-five, sixty, seventy-five minutes in, you're getting a sense of how real people's struggles are today, right? And and how hard it is, and I think the the people that I can see that are doing better, about one in 10 in all my interviews, the real core thing they have done is to keep at least two or three groups they're engaged with outside of work alive. And they just have a little more dimensionality in their life, whether it's around athletics, music, spiritual, art, poetry, I and mean, it comes from all sorts of walks of life. But those people, they're engaging with other people that care about that thing, so they show up for it and they keep in it. And it becomes a part of their identity. But what people often don't think about is suddenly you're surrounded by a bunch of people that come at life from very different perspectives. It's not all just you know the investment banks or the consulting firms or whatever. And you just get a different framing of what matters and what doesn't right? in these things. And it just makes people healthier. Like if I had one idea for everybody, yeah. if I had to force it to one, um, that's the, the seemingly, to me, the biggest, most consistent thing we can do to put structure into our lives that keeps us kind of showing up in, in different ways and more broadly. You and it's like a little passionate about
2: that after going on. No no, 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 <laughs> no. I, I, All
0: these interviews, it's just a little bit.
2: <laughs> I know, I agree. And I I'm, I'm on a, from a personal perspective, I find the days where I do on a 15-hour day and don't do anything else, and if I do that maybe two, three days in a row, then I'm quite grumpy and irritable, and but if I'm actually intentional about getting time to do some sport, um, either individually or in a group, I play cricket. We went to work cricket. Right. Don't worry. Um, or I get even even if I take the dog out with my wife at lunchtime when the kids are at school. You know, it's just it, it, it totally. just it's, it enables you to compartmentalize work a little bit as well and get that variety, which I think is so important. Yeah,
0: I got, I mean, I think that's the trick. Like, and 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 I'll be quick with this, but I you know in the in the what i've found is there's a set of spheres that create a sense of purpose for people in terms of the interactions and the trick of the people that are really happy and really kind of showing up differently it's not that they're doing one massive thing in terms of purpose they're not hiking the himalayas or sailing the ocean Mm -hmm. it's that they craft the small moments to create a greater sense of purpose so you walking the dog with your wife right suddenly that's creating a connection there and you may extend it to say gosh why don't we take the neighbor and, and you know one other group right and th- that's those little shifts in what you're already doing that pull you into more kinds of spheres that really seems to be the magic of the people that are doing better uh today from what i can see anyway
2: couple <laughs> more questions i know we're right we're running out of time um first one uh, i'm going to combine <laughs> two of them actually um, what are the biggest opportunities do you think for, for companies and 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 in perhaps in particular our people analytics leaders to to collect and analyze network data and you might include DNI as part of that because I know that's something you're passionate about yeah. so we combine those yeah. two. I,
0: I think to to me you know there's there's two ways to solve this problem of overload and just people getting burned out, stressed out, falling innovation things like that that will start to happen if we don't figure this out one is this individual route that i'm talking about and kind of just taking control of it individually but undeniably yep. the other problem is as we have gone through you know um these you know past 10 15 20 years we've had all these technologies deployed on organizations every single consulting firm comes in with a new spin of the week but at the heart of it they're taking layers consistently out of the hierarchy they're they're largely kind of focusing on how do we become more agile more nimble in in significant parts by just focusing on the decision-making interactions and not seeing the way inefficiencies happen with overload you know either around core roles core experts other things like that so there's a whole host of drivers that you know we've seen the collaborative intensity of work rise um to you know where i pre-pandemic we were seeing about 85 percent of most people's time in a given week spent on the phone on email and in meetings and we know that's risen you know depending on which which study you look at. So the, the really big thing from an organizational standpoint is people aren't leveraging that data enough right now, you know, and I, I see yeah. these formal structure decisions being made or role design decisions being made where you can look at role A and role B is like the, the the work demands of those roles are seemingly the same. But you find with role A, it's just them coordinating between two groups that like each other. And then role B gets stuck with three time zones, two leaders that hate each other and misaligned incentives. And it's a totally different game, right? And so until we get a, a, a sense, you know, in my mind, what I call it is the collaborative footprint of the work. Um, we're going to run into trouble. And I think that that holds, you know, on for a lot of things from a performance standpoint. Same idea with de 9 right? It, it, you, you start looking at the, these relationships and start understanding that um, there are different challenges uh, for different subgroups. And then understanding the novel ways that they kind of break in has been fascinating. And f- from some of the work we're doing, for example, um we could see what people what exemplars were doing in those categories you know the people that managed to break in more quickly and one of the key things they did is they interacted in a way that created trust in them quickly and they did it in very specific ways they did this pull versus push thing first right they they kind of situated their capabilities against others needs then they created competence-based trust by delivering against that quickly. And then they would create benevolence-based trust by getting off task. And they would ratchet in very quickly, you know, and, and not have a problem in getting connected. And so to me, that's really hopeful because a lot of places are focusing on implicit bias training, which undoubtedly exists, but it's very hard to train out of any of us. You know, we, we have that knee-jerk reaction. And we're also left with the impression in the implicit bias studies that, un- because they're cognitive in nature we're left with the impression that we never change our mind you know that once you and i have locked in Mm. it's that way forever and it's just not true like you see all sorts of interactions happening and so being able to learn from those people that accelerate that trust and and kind of think about okay maybe there's a different way to influence this on both sides you know what i mean the the behavior on both sides has been super cool I mean, i'm really enthused about kind of some of the the pilots that we're seeing uh, there so but i think in general that all the, the heart of it all starts with getting better measurement <laughs> you yeah. know and, and kind of seeing what does this all look like and, and taking action that way
2: so to last question before we, before we round up um, and this is a question we're asking everyone on this series so you might you probably have a, uh, a, might think about the sort of collaboration element of this how can hr as a as a function help the business identify the critical skills for the for the future
0: um i think it's it's a couple layers for me if i were looking at that and and thinking about that i think one is at the organizational level and that can be you know through people analytics roles. many many places in the people analytics space that's been the biggest you know increase in my consortium over the uh, last couple of years the key is not the analytics, but the key is um, the insights, the actionable insights, right? Getting really good at that <laughs> um, because unfortunately the analytics for network analysis, they've evolved, you know, for probably close to a hundred years now, but it's been a very scholarly set of analytics that are very good for scientific proofs, but not for actionable insights. And so I think, you know, at the organizational level, you really want to ID what's the actionable insights and kind of help you know them be applied At the team level, there's ways that we're building out that's a part of the commons right now, very focused on looking at team success as a product of how networks are forming inside and outside. And then, you know, at the individual level, I think that's a lot of what I was focused on in this book. There's not a company out there that I'm aware of that doesn't have a leadership capability. In one form or the other, that's around collaboration. You know, they may call it one firm or matrix mindset or all these other terms, but the heart of it is around collaboration and getting you know greater results um, that way. Yet, most of them are throwing things like Myers Briggs training at it or things that are tangential to, to collaboration. And what we've really tried to do with the book is to say, look, here's what these people are doing, you know, and ways to to work. So I'm hoping that. That has an impact there, right? It helps in, in a couple of different levels as we go. We
2: will see <laughs> as it comes out. <laughs> well, well, Rob, I, I was enjoying the conversation so much I completely lost track of the time. Actually. Me as well, and I apologize for rambling. You get me going, and <laughs> <laughs> which is a re- which hopefully the listeners will enjoy as well. So, thank you for being a guest on the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. How can people stay in touch with you? Find out more about your work, and also find out more about Beyond Collaboration Overload. As well, Yeah, absolutely. So,
0: I mean, obviously on on LinkedIn, uh, a great way to connect there, but probably the most prominent area for me is my website. You know, we've put up a a website that mentions the book, but also a lot of these other programs of work. And that's where we're featuring a lot of the white papers coming from the consortium and kind of evolving ideas. So that's um, robcross.org and Always would welcome to have people out there looking and, and also telling me, you know, what people are up to. I, I thrive on that. <laughs> and so I'd love to hear from people
2: at that level, too. And we will put some links in, uh, in the material that we're around the, the, the episode um, so people can go and dig into some stuff. I'll put some examples of some of Rob's articles there as well so people can dive in. Rob, thanks so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's yeah, a great end to my day. I know it's in the middle of your day. So, uh, yeah. so thank you very much. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Oh, thank you too.
1: Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to produce the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, subscribe to the podcast and our weekly newsletter at myhrfuture.com. Next week on the podcast, we'll be speaking to Mikhail Vornu, founder and CEO at TechWolf. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.